everything about how we run an election should be an invitation to participate. And that all the design details that go into the little bits and pieces should be about smoothing out the bumps and making sure that people know how to get from step one to step two, from step two to step three, and that everybody is invited from the day they're eligible to vote to the day they die to continue to take part in elections and to be part of this kind of amazing experiment we have with democracy. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Among the things I try to track on this podcast are the political entrepreneurs working directly to improve the functioning of our democracy. In this episode, I spoke with Whitney Quisenberry, a user experience designer who now runs the Center for Civic Design, a nonprofit that works to design voting systems to effectively, simply, and pleasantly capture voter intent. She sees democracy as a design problem. We had a good conversation about her career and current work. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Whitney at the Center for Civic Design. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Whitney Quisenberry. I used to be a general run-of-the-mill user experience researcher and designer. And one day we had this election in 2000. And I also got elected then to the board of directors for a professional association. And they said, go do something about this election. And 21 years later, here I am running a nonprofit who's dedicated to Democracy is a design problem that is using all of our skills as UX researchers and designers, we now call it civic research and design, to try to help the wheels of democracy turn a little bit better. So was it the butterfly ballot that got you going and other things like that that may have changed the results of that election? It was the butterfly ballot. This was a, a huge thing in, in the usability and UX world. The idea that an interface design actually made a difference in elections was huge. Many of us had this experience where our parents, for the first time, had some idea what we did for a living. But we started learning that there was more to it. And I think the butterfly ballot is actually a really instructive lesson for us because that wasn't a deliberate mistake. That was a mistake made because the county clerk had been told that she had a lot of elderly voters and that older people's eyes aren't as good as they used to be. And she wanted to make the text bigger. And so in trying to make the text bigger, she created this other problem. And that was when we started realizing that this is pretty, this is a pretty complex problem because we don't get to exclude people. 
We don't get to say, you know, only people with enough money to come to this store or buy this product are the ones we're talking to. It's not commercial. And that we have to think about not just what would produce an 80% good solution, but that it was about, I mean, elections are about large numbers and they're also about very small numbers, right? The very small numbers of, of the margin of victory in many cases. And all the things that we tend to work on are the things where something happens in the small numbers, where maybe it affects a small number of people in a sort of random way. Maybe it affects certain groups of people. Uh, maybe people have experience with elections, but where uh, something is happening to enough people that it could potentially change how our democracy works. It could change the outcome of elections. It could change who's allowed to vote. It could change who understands how to do something like voting by mail. Well, when you had a presidential election decided by 500 votes in one state and where maybe the ballot design in one county threw the decision of 300 million people in a different direction, it's, it's astonishing to contemplate how important things like that can be on the margin. Sure. And, you know, Florida has been a trifecta because we've had a congressional race and we've had a senatorial race and we've had a presidential race. So they've, they've covered all three branches of the, of the legislature and, and executive. Just to catch up with you a little bit, you mentioned that sort of the first part of your career is usability. Tell me about how you went down that road and what was interesting about that in a more generic sense first. Wow. I, I actually started in theater. I mean, I was I was an arts person. I didn't use computers. Lighting was, design or something? Lighting design, yeah. yeah. I, I got married and we moved out of the city uh, so my husband could have a big workspace. And some of our friends were working for a company that was doing this interesting new thing called hypertext. This is pre-web. And they needed someone to write a manual for, for a product they created. And they said, you're an English major. <laughs> you know, come on. Come on down here and write this thing. And uh, a few years later, the next thing I knew, I was turning down a show because I was too busy working on that. And the person who ran that company, Charlie Kreisberg, was one of the early people thinking about usability. He'd also been an artist. He'd been a musician, not not one who made it to the professional level, but a musician. And he loved computers. He fell in love with them and he wanted everyone to be able to use them. Right. And so we began thinking about what happens when everybody's actually using these things. And so a lot of the work we did early was in, you know, inside businesses. It was creating hypertext and thinking about how people read things on screen. I loved it. I didn't actually quit the business. I just shifted the focus of my work. What do you think that people who work on usability, people who design in that sort of way, know that other people don't know? We know that we don't know, right? Anybody who's designing a piece of software or a way of doing something like a service, they already understand that service. They already know lots of things about it and they have a vocabulary around it and they have expectations on either side of the interaction. And so as good as we think we are, we can't possibly know what it's like to be someone who doesn't know. And I think that's particularly true about literacy. There's a stat that we love to quote from um, a federal survey of, of literacy in the United States which is that 43% of people in this country read at what they call basic or below basic levels. And you might think this is an indictment of the U.S. educational system, but the, the same numbers exist across the Anglosphere, right? So you see them in Canada, you see them in Great Britain, you see them in Australia. This isn't about how smart people are. It's about the degree to which they absorb information through the written word. Now, the huge hunk of us are kind of intermediate, we do fine, 
There's 13% who are really proficient at drawing inferences from written language. And there's uh, some people who are can, can deal with simple, concrete declarative sentences. And I'll give you an example of how that plays out. We were working on a valid interface. Uh, we were thinking specifically of people who had low literacy. And we had a button on it at the top where you could jump to the review screen and it was called review your choices. And we constructed the, the session so that people were forced to sort of get that button, they'd get to that screen and it would show all the contests and who they'd picked for that contest. And the sessions just kind of went to hell about that point in time. We couldn't figure out what was going wrong until one of our participants said, it says review your choices, but when I get here, there's only one. What happened to the other ones? And we all just went, oh my God, of course, choices can be the things you can choose from, or it could be the things you have chosen. And that's a nuance of language. We changed it to review your votes and the problem disappeared. Small things make big differences. We had three plain language experts on this project. So we learned how much we have to listen to people. And I think that's the biggest difference between what we think of as kind of designer-led design and user or voter-led design. Well, you have to figure that people vary a lot and they vary on every dimension. And some people are going to be really good at figuring out interfaces and other people are going to be really terrible and everything in between. And, yeah. yeah. And in elections, there's this extra piece, which is trust, right? Do you view the interaction you're having suspiciously? That is, they're trying to, they might be trying to trick me or some things go, things go bad if I don't fill in this form right? Or do you view it as uh, they've got my back and I just need to get my information onto this form, thinking about, say, voter registration? Along your usability road, are you self-taught? This is something that's kind of grown up. There's certifications that have grown up along the way. There's There's programs at design schools and elsewhere. What was your education on that front? My education was mostly on the job, but I did a lot of, you know, professional training along the way. Um, sometimes just in the form of talking to people, sometimes in the form of trying to write about things and uh, going out and talking to other people to learn about it. And then I did a late master's on, on social research methods because uh, the opportunity came up and I thought it'd be nice to kind of pull together some of the theory behind the stuff I've learned to do practically. I noticed this thing called the open university, which I was not aware of um, until looking at your biography. And what is that? It's the largest university in the UK, for one thing. It was Harold Wilson's experiment with opening up the British educational system so that everybody could get a degree who wanted one. And it is the precursor to a lot of the, the things we're doing today with, with online and remote education. But it's a proper university. The courses are taught in a period of time, and you, the class moves moves along it together. So it's remote, but not but not self paced. And I happened to be working there doing UX things. I mean, helping them on the website. When they started, you sign up for a course, and they would literally send you a box of tapes and books and papers. And I worked with them with the team that became part of communications during the time that online education shifted to being relying on things being sent to you electronically. You went to Bryn Mawr as an undergrad, if I understand. And that is such an in enormously different way to get an education. What do you think are the strengths and weaknesses of those two different models, if you think about contrasting them? Well, I went to Bryn Mawr when I was 18, um, and I got my master's when I was in my 50s. There's a whole life experience there that's different. 
even at the Open University, there were opportunities to work together, just like we've all figured out how to do in the pandemic. But there's something about being in a space where your job is to explore and learn and where everybody's goal is to, to help you do that. By the time I got to the Open University, their job was to, to create a space in which I could meet a goal, you know, just to learn about social research methods. But they weren't responsible for me as a person as much. Those two things, I mean, working with a cohort and coming through Bryn Mawr in a you know, four-year American university in a, in a cohort model is interesting. You learn a lot about the people around you. I think that's why universities believe that diversity is so important, because if everybody has the same viewpoint, then you're just in an echo chamber. And sometimes that happens in the classroom, and sometimes that just happens in the social life that they create. So tell me about how you come to start the Center for Civic Design. What's sort of the path that takes you there and the founding story? The founding story is really easy. In California, the Irvine Foundation um, started a group called the Future of California Elections that brought together election officials and advocates and rights groups and said, let's see if we can work together to change what California elections look like. And they uh, put out a call for some research on things. And one of them was about how voters get information. California, as some of you may know, sends out a lot of information to voters. So they get a county voter guide and they get a, a, a state voter guide. And of course, because of the measures, they get a lot of political mail. And the question was how to make that really work for the people. You know, we, we think of it as, you know, can we make those trees not die in vain? I applied for that. And they said, you're an organization, right? And we said, oh, we can be. <laughs> um, and the next thing we knew, we were the center. I had known Dana, my co-founder, Dana Chazelle, and I founded the center. I'd known her back from the UX days we share a mentor. And we'd worked on some things. We'd done some projects. Uh, we, After 2008, we worked with the Secretary of State's office in Minnesota on their absentee ballot instructions. You may recall that that was an interesting election as well. And we kept saying, well, should start an organization? And the answer was kind of, well, it's a lot of work to start an organization. Let's just keep doing what we're doing. And when we, when the moment to be an organization happens, we'll know what it is. And that was the answer. We had a two-year grant. So we became a 501c3. And we thought, we'll do this a couple of years and we'll go on. And that was in 2013. And here we are today with um, almost 10 people working here. That's uh, pretty exciting. Who do you work for? Who are your clients? What do you do for them? We actually focus on election administration, and we do so consciously. We got into this to make the voting experience better for voters. And we very quickly realized that all those experiences that voters are having are mediated by an office called the elections office. And that if you want to make the ballots better, if you want to make the voter registration forms better, those forms have to be better at an office. So we started working with the election officials. And part of that was because of future California elections, where we were in a group. I did not realize at the time how unusual it was to have that cast of characters actually working together towards a purpose. Uh, I never want to work in any other way than that again. Um, so we actually do a lot of work bringing advocacy groups and election groups together. And sometimes we're just bringing voters by doing the testing we do. But we also began to realize how much election officials were constrained by policy. So we began thinking about that chain from the grounding framework of the policy to how it's implemented at an election office to how that appears to voters. And that's the chain that we work. I guess I've talked to some folks in the space that I assume are 
potentially collaborators to you. Like I, I've talked to Amber McReynolds, who you I'm must a collaborator. Know. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, uh, someone who was part of the MIT Caltech uh, mm -hmm. group that worked up. But like, I mean, such a crucial, especially when you have a president who recently made all these claims about voter fraud and, you know, made up a lot of stuff. But there are always difficulties. There's always like on the margin things that can be improved and that do affect things like, like they did in Florida in 2000. What is the space of people who are working on the design of our elections beyond you? Um, I would say Center for Tech and Civic Life is to some extent in that space. There's a group at Stanford that's in that space at the D School. We intersect with the general civic tech world, civic design, civic tech world, because, but they tend to be more like my old, my old life, which is that you'd be hired by National Cancer Institute to work on their website. And there's a big website team. It's less distributed. It's the structure of the people you're working with is, is much different. So we're often saying to a state, maybe work on a voter registration form, are you making sure you're bringing in your, your local election officials as part of this process? Um, there's also people like Ideas42 who are um, behavioral science folks. So they're, they're thinking about how do we, not just nudges, but how do we know it works? Certainly people like MIT and Paul Gronke out in Portland and uh, Michael McDonald, all the people who are sort of measuring elections and all the ways that you can measure it in a political science sort of way are really important because that helps us see where there might be problems and also know when we're succeeding. Like, here's a good question. What's an acceptable number of vote-by-mail ballots that get rejected? It really ought to be designed so it's very few. It is. And when and so MIT's election performance index lets us see where, where states are. We want to see it be less than 1%. If there's a cure, it can go lower than that. If we design a vote-by-mail envelope and the package and materials, we can say, did it move? Now, it's hard to claim it's all designed because other things happen around that change. There are some people who are, have incentive to disallow more ballots to make it so that you have to have multiple signatures or verified signatures. They want to add a lot of complexity to it to raise, well, I guess the theory being to make sure the proper people are voting. How do you think about that? So there's policy and there's implementation. And we have worked on implementing policies that we don't particularly like. But if that policy exists, I want to make sure if you need a witness signature, I would like to make sure that when you see your envelope and the instructions that you know that you need one and you know where they should be signing. And sometimes working on implementation helps people clarify what the policy should really say. We can often say, look, here are things we're seeing that are hard because we've made them hard and maybe it, we could make it simpler and still meet the goal of good election integrity. Have you ever had a state or other client push you towards making things more hidden? No, we haven't. I think this is partly the nature of local election officials. I mean, these are the people who stand across the counter from their constituents and making it difficult makes their life difficult. It's one of the few places where the internal and external goals kind of line up because having ballots that come in and get spoiled are not, is not good for the country. It's not good for democracy, but it's also not good for that office. It makes them look bad. Um, and it means that they have angry voters and angry voters are not great for any service organization. Do you think sort of thinking broadly about how we administer elections that we do a good job in this country? 
Well, you know, we got through 2000 and there's a saying in election officials world that, you know, maybe one day we'll run a perfect election and no one will notice. And I think that kind of happened. But just because we can do it doesn't mean it's the best way to do it. I think there are things that are where there's an assumption that that the jurisdiction is a small enough place that people can know each other, right? And sometimes that shows up in wonderful and, and, and inspiring ways, like that on same-day registration in Minnesota, if you don't have the ID they need, someone can vouch for you and to say, yes, I know they live here, right? And so you get the benefit of that sort of thing. But it also means that we get situations in larger cities that aren't as, as human-centered as they ought to be. And I think we also haven't faced the problem of how do you handle a statewide jurisdiction, let's just stick to a state, where in any state there's bound to be one or two big cities, a few medium-sized cities, and a lot of very small counties. And they have very different needs and very different relationships. And how do you create a policy that adjusts to all of them? Because it can't be there's one Dropbox per county, because that doesn't make any sense when one county has 1,200 voters and the other has 120,000 or 1.2 million, right? So we haven't figured out scale yet. I think we haven't quite figured out um, what we're going to do about the fact that in-person impersonation of a voter is, is just vanishingly rare. You're more likely to get hit by lightning. But the opportunities for scaled fraud in vote by mail exists. We've seen it in states. And I, I specifically, it's election fraud, not voter fraud. But that opportunity exists. And how do we, how do we manage so that we have the checks and bounds around this and still allow the kind of flexibility that lets people with different work and life patterns be able to vote? You're almost necessarily a nonpartisan organization. It doesn't make sense to be any other thing in doing this particular job, right? Yeah, absolutely. How do you think about the intersection of partisanship and administration? Because it's out there. It's always out there. And it's a, it's a tightrope all the time. There are people I work with, I actually have no idea what their personal politics are. That's the situation I love the best. But I think that it's hard sometimes to tell whether a bad situation is historical and needs to be broken down. Is it just that the structure has grown up that way? Is it a resource problem? Is it an intent problem? And how can we bring a better view of of how this impacts voters into the process? The other thing that we've begun to do a little bit is we will occasionally work with people like, say, the Fair Votes, right, who are working on getting ranked choice voting implemented across the country. We may be actually officially neutral on whether ranked choice voting is a great idea or not, but I'm emphatically not neutral on needing to design it well and explain it well. So we've been very proud to work with New York City with both the Board of Elections Campaign Finance Board and the advocates on how do we help this gigantic city take on this amazing thing that they're doing right now as we speak, right, for the next week and a half, which is choosing the candidates, the primary candidates, uh, the party candidates uh, for an election in a completely different way. That's got to be hard for the first time implementation in a wildly giant and diverse place to understand that ranked choice thing. They did have some pilots. They had some specials. So they actually had a chance at some pilots. We've been doing user research. We're going to be out at at vote centers talking to people. One of the things we're hearing is that confronted with a ballot, it's not quite as hard as we think. It's, It's understanding the chain from how I mark my ballot all the way to who wins that election. And 
a couple of years ago, we did a pretty big project for Fair Vote and the Ranked Choice Voting Resource Center where we built a set of best practices. So we're now coming in with some history of having designed ranked choice voting materials, including instructions, and now beginning to see how you apply that. And one of the things that we're doing is, I think, some of the first research on RCV in Spanish. One of the things that we try to do is make sure that we are including as diverse a group as possible and thinking about who might be most disadvantaged or most at risk from a change, right? What's the impact on someone with a disability if they're using the accessible machine? What's the impact if, you don't, if you're not a native English speaker? What's the impact if? And being the people who sort of ask those questions around the edges. You talked about some people not being great at interpreting even short declarative uh, buttons. Do you think this is something that presented correctly works well? I think so. Introducing anything new in a system as big as, say, a New York City election is going to be a big job no matter what it is. I mean, they have 32,000 some poll workers. Just, I mean, those numbers are bigger than some counties, right? Yeah, just training that many people in any fashion is a big deal. Right. But one of my theories about elections is that we establish normal by how we set up the polling place. So if you set up the polling place well so it's clear and each, you know, you move through that process in, in a way that seems sensible and there's someone who can answer questions if they're asked, it takes you a long way towards doing it. When they introduced ranked choice voting in Minneapolis, they had a little script for the person handing the, the voter their ballot to read. It was, it was a couple of sentences, but they weren't supposed to say anything but that. And we were observing and visiting. And in the morning, they were reading that fairly mechanically, as they would, right? By the end of the day, they'd kind of gotten it into something that sounded like, you know, they're just talking to you. So they'd begun to internalize it. And one of the things that we noticed was even when someone said, can't you tell them anymore? They'd say, no, you really have to decide how to vote myself. People would go, okay, but yeah, it's good that you're not telling me what to do, right? So if people are generally excited to vote and people turn out when there's a big deal election, why can't we get more people to turn out for the nuts and bolts elections? The ones where if you break 10% turnout, you're doing well. To me, that's really the big societal challenge is, is getting everybody to feel that they know enough about what's going on, that they have a stake in it. People talk about in a big election, does your individual vote count? Well, in a small stakes election in you know, your, your small town with, for your mayor, that's when your vote really does count on a proportional basis. I was very attracted to the expression I saw on your website, democracy is a design problem. You got it. <laughs> When you think about it that way, it takes what could be pretty arcane, small, you know, nitpicky little things and makes them important and makes them interesting. Why is this a good job for you? It's a good fit for me because I'm just a details nerd. We hired somebody recently and he was basically hired in my head when he said, oh God, I love working on government forms. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, you know, to be able to say that sentence aloud is is so un- unusual. So you have to be someone who's, I mean, look, I used to have red hair. Now, now it's less of it and it's gray. But you have to be willing to see change over time. The nice thing about elections is there's, all, there's always another one, right? There's always, there's always another time, time to try it or another place. So I've gotten to like the seeing how a change can affect things. Something as simple as putting an X next to the place where your signature goes. And it's not that it's the only way to get people's attention, 
But if we did it everywhere and all vote by mail ballots look something alike, we could begin to have a national conversation about it. We're a highly mobile society. People move around. And so if they move to another state and there's their ballot comes in the mail and it's got that X next to the box, there's something comforting about that degree of consistency. And interestingly, if you have the details more consistent, people come in, there's a breath of, of, yes, I recognize this. And now we can trust the bigger things that have changed that might be different. To what degree are we converging? I mean, obviously we administer locally. There are so many different localities designing elections in different ways. How much are people collaborating and how much are we converging? Should we be nationalizing this process? What is your thought about the kind of the federalism and elections? Um, I'm okay with, with not having a federal ballot design. Uh, you know, what if we all had the Palm Beach ballot? There's, there's that. Uh, I think there's value in the local innovations. But I think things like statewide voter registration databases help drive some consistency because instead of each each county clerk having their own you know database of how they keep track of their voters it's been kept track and there's some consistency because they talk to each other and we start to see things and groups like eric the database for sharing voter registration across states that's right so there's some consistency there and we begin to say things like yeah of course let's let's make sure and one of the great things that eric does is in addition to reporting on, you know, deaths and births and things like that. So death records. They also send every state that's a, a member of it a report of people they believe to be eligible voters in their jurisdiction, but who are not registered. Uh, so they can do an outreach to them. Like someone who might have moved into the state but didn't register to vote when they got their driver's license. They can start to flag those people. So we're seeing some procedural consistency that just comes from some of the systems that we're putting in place. We see some language consistency. If the whole state is using the same poll book, then you have poll workers kind of having the same interaction with voters. It's important to leave room for innovation, not only because new ideas come from that, but because dealing with the crazy things that happen. If you've made every local election into a sort of rote following of rules, they, you lose the ability to adapt and figure out how to solve a problem when a problem comes up. How do you cope with attacks on elections? We've had really just blatant, and we're in the middle of an assault on the process. Are you tempted to to defend it? Do you stay out of that? It's sometimes going right after the work of, of the good people who administer elections. Yeah. I mean, this is if there's anything that would make me partisan, it's this. In our work, we do it by trying to say, this is, this is good work and let's show you how. In our personal lives, we do what we do. The attack on the elections is bad enough. The fact that election officials are being personally attacked, um, death threats and threats on their family is just, it's beyond the pale. And this has to stop. This absolutely has to stop. You can't run a government without the frontline administrators, without the people who do the work in the community year in and year out the flood of knowledge that's leaving the field with people just saying, I'm done. I didn't sign up for this. I don't know what's going to happen. I, I know that everybody, a lot of people are working on it, but it's a real challenge. The number of open, open positions is hard. Some without a good chain of succession to take over from them. And also people who don't 
have the same institutional who aren't institutionalists are sometimes now gunning for these roles in order to drive it towards a result rather than accept the will of the voters. Imagine if someone said, we're going to politicize the property records in our county, but the people who run your property records are often the same people that run elections. The people who run birth and death records are the same people who run elections. It should not be partisan. It shouldn't be questioned. This is about running the day-to-day and making laws that make it harder for them to do their job. It's just bad. Bad is almost a not strong enough word for the irresponsibility of people who are doing that. And it's just super upsetting. It is. There are days when you just want to put your head under the pillow and say, maybe I should go back to making commercial websites, but I'm not going to do it. And I don't think anybody working in the field is going to do it because I think there's just way too much at stake. Maybe in a certain way, a better time to be doing it, a more important time to be doing it when it's under threat. Where do you want to take the Center for Civic Design? You've somehow grown it up to 10 people, you said. Sounds like that's a lot of work. 10 people can do a lot of work. Where are you going? What's the plan? Part of our plan is that we're reactive because things happen in elections and that drives where everybody's going with it. But we would like to see a much more consistent approach to vote by mail. You know, and we have some ideas about voter registration and some ideas about some sort of tactical things. But I think the bigger idea we have is this, that everything about how we run an election should be an invitation to participate. And that all the design details that go into the little bits and pieces should be about smoothing out the bumps and making sure that people know how to get from step one to step two, from step two to step three, and that everybody is invited from the day they're eligible to vote to the day they die to continue to take part in elections and to be part of this kind of amazing experiment we have with democracy. It's not the way it is, though. The designed in or accidental or historical or newly created barriers are manifold. Just the idea of registration itself. I mean, the amount of money that gets spent just trying to get people registered, the, the amount of money trying to get them to turn out, the GOTV efforts. I mean, it's, it's hundreds of millions or billions of dollars just to, because the process is hard. But that's why things like automatic voter registration are so important. It should, that should be national. Yes, that should be national. We're about, oh, not quite too, halfway there, but it should be national. It should be easy. Georgia I mean, in the midst of everything else, Georgia put in automatic voter registration and increased the registration at the DMV by some 900%. We should use the opportunities we have. If you do lose your rights to vote, if you're convicted on a felony and in jail, when you walk out the door, you should be reinstated. We should use what we know about people to keep their records up to date. We should put less burden on voters and we should be more active in reaching out to them at every opportunity where they intersect with with government whether that's paying you know at their how, where they get housing if it's paying your taxes uh, at all of those opportunities we should be simply making sure that everybody is registered so that the decision to vote is not about getting registered but about deciding you want to go vote i want to see all the gotv effort shifted to wanting to vote not just being able to vote. It seems like the opportunities to put design, to put usability into governmental processes 
are endless. Yes. I mean, it's just <laughs> and, and kind of exciting when done well, when people redesign the Department of Motor Vehicles to measure the throughput and and it changes the experience from awful, painful to good or great. And that can happen with any intersection between the populace and the government at any level. What do you do outside of the voting arena and would you want to do more? Um, I've done a lot of things outside of the voting arena, but I think one of the things that when we talk about where CCD might grow if we grew past elections, if one day we actually did ourselves out of a job, it would probably be in local elections because that's the place where there's the least resources and where there are the most people. Because one of the things that we see is that as we talk about things like plain language, at first it feels awkward and strange and you get some resistance on, you know, you're dumbing things down. But over time, we see willing and engaged election officials. And I, of course, have a little bit of a rose-colored glasses because those are the people we deal with, right? We don't tend to deal with the ones that don't want to do what we're, what we're interested in. But we see them learn to speak in, in plain language at all and write in plain language as well. And uh, so to us, the success isn't when we get something done. The success is when they get something done building on the work we've done um, because that makes it part of how they're thinking about communicating with voters and interacting with voters. If you had the ear of all of the people who are in the design of election space for a minute, what would you tell them to do? What's the biggest things that ought to be improved and how? The biggest thing they ought to improve is how they include actual voters in the process. So bringing them into the design process like you might if you're a software company and you want your users you have a user conference or something asking them how the software works or doesn't work right. for them. In 2020, Los Angeles introduced a new voting system, and they also introduced uh, voting by mail, uh, joining the Voters' Choice Act. Voters' Choice Act requires all the counties to have a language access committee, a voter, a voter disabilities access committee, and it required them to do public meetings to introduce how they were shifting to vote centers. They did something like 500 local presentations and open forum to hear back from voters when they decided how to place their vote centers. I mean, they could have gotten out a map and done it, but they did something where there was an open call, mostly through organizations, I mean, through the community groups, and they got over 1,500 recommendations for places that would make good vote centers. It doesn't matter if they were duplicated. The point is they asked and that when they asked, people actually gave them answers. That's a lot of answers. And so now when they choose where those vote centers go, they're doing it with not just their own opinion, not just a mapping view of it, but actually having talked to and listened to um, advocates groups and community groups and actual voters on what makes a good location for a vote center. And hopefully they'll learn from their experience in 2020. Right, whatever happened there, they'll be learning about where the mobile centers need to be, how big they need to be, which, which ones got lots of people early, which ones didn't get lots of people early. How can we take the resources and get them into the places that make a difference to, to actual individual people? What should I be asking about your work that I haven't? <laughs> oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, God, I should be prepared for this question. I ask it myself all the time. Well, one thing you get asked about is, is about accessible voting. We think about accessible voting as helping people with disabilities vote, and it is that. But I think what it's really doing is expanding our view 
of the abilities and attitudes that people bring to voting. So language access is really is part of that as well, beginning to think about different ways people need to or want to interact. Well, every jurisdiction has a, an accessible voting machine. One of the questions we've been interested in is whether they offer it to everybody or whether they say that's only for people who need it. And what happens if it was offered equally? It was like you could choose to mark a paper, handmark paper ballot, or you could choose to vote on the machine. Because we're hearing things like just worrying that you haven't filled in the oval well enough, that, that this this thing that we've presented as, oh, it's easy, everybody knows how to take a, a standardized test, you just fill in the ovals, is actually a little nerve-wracking for people who aren't sure how that machine is going to count their ballot and is it going to count and will they make a mistake? And one of the things about the ballot marking devices is they, they help you with that. And so how do we learn not just how to solve yesterday's problems, but to how to anticipate and hear the changes that are coming forward? Technology has changed the world of people with disabilities. What does that mean for how they want to interact with elections? Um, and how do we use their lived experience to have better ideas to, to let us move forward? And how do we think about when those ideas might be great, not just for someone with a specific disability, but for lots of different people? Well, it's very interesting to talk to you. It's interesting to think about this connection between design and democracy. And I think you found an interesting niche to work to work in. I, I, I love it when people do that and and find a place like that. Is there anything else you want to say? If you're making something for voters, keep it simple. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make is we overestimate how much complexity people want and how much choice people want. And how much they can deal with. Yeah. We worked on a project with WeCanVote.us called HealthyVoting.org last year. There was a team of lawyers who made sure that we were staying up to date with all the, all the changes that were happening in elections. But we kept the interface as flat and as simple and as clear as we could. It answered a question. What are my options for voting? And how do I make the healthiest decision for myself in the pandemic? And that was all it did. And it took a huge amount of work to get it, to keep it that simple. Is that a general lesson about all interface? Yes. Yeah. I forget who it is that said they could write what they needed to say quickly at length, but it would take a lot of time to do it really right and briefly. There's just effort and simplicity, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a concept in, in startup apps called the minimum viable product. And the idea is figure out what the core is and then let your audience tell you more about what they need. Don't tell me the 500 pieces of information I need. Tell me the one I need most and then expand on it. Help me understand whether I need to read this at all, right? If you have a section on rules for voting if you're a student, right, who isn't living at home. If I'm not a student who's not living at home, I don't need to read that at all. How do we do that? Without hiding it so that someone who needs it doesn't trip over it. That was Whitney Quisenberry. She's at civicdesign.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.